Well, uh, welcome everybody. Very nice to see you. I'm John Chalcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. I work in Middle East studies and the history and politics of the Middle East uh, and North Africa. And on, I work especially on social movements, contentious politics, and labor and labor migration. Uh, this is part of our seminar series in social movements and popular mobilization. Uh, and I'd like to say thank you to the Middle East Center and the government department for sponsoring this series, and of course to you all for coming. Uh, the speaker is going to speak for 20 minutes. Usually we only allow 10, but in this case, uh, most of us, uh, I mean, the paper isn't pre circulated, and so we're going to allow 20 minutes for the presentation. Uh, and then um, 10 minutes for the discussant. If you kindly uh, turn off your phones, this event is also being recorded, and so we can podcast it. It reaches a wider audience, so uh, be aware that what you say will be on on record. Um, and, and mainly, we're very pleased to welcome here today uh, Dr. Thomas Pierre from the University of Edinburgh, who's going to present his paper, Insurgent Cohesion and Collapse in Syria, a Social Institutionalist Explanation. Uh, it's very interesting and important work. You, I'm not sure you'll find uh, better at the moment in academic circles on the puzzles of, especially the precise puzzle he addresses, how uh, and in what ways can we understand the changing forms of cohesion and uh, right, fortunes of Islamist factions and movements in Syria. Uh, he's somebody, he got his PhD in uh, Sciences Po Paris and also the Université uh, de Louvain. Uh, he's now um, a senior lecturer in contemporary Islam, Islamic and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Edinburgh. He has a particular focus on Syria. He has a book out with Cambridge University Press in 2013 uh, called Religion and State in Syria. And he's uh, uh, got a body of, of, of commentary and, and, and a public profile uh, in, in a number of high-profile media outlets uh, on, on the Syria case. And we'd also welcome here Dr. Jerome Dravon, who's going to act as discussant. And uh, he's also done significant research on uh, uh, Salafism and, uh, and, and political and religious movements in Syria. He's, uh, he's a visiting postdoctoral research fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government in the University of Oxford. He's particularly interested in the study of civil wars, contentious politics, and political violence. He has a PhD in political violence from the University of Durham, and he's uh, developed uh, an innovative research agenda on armed violence uh, based on a variety of approaches, especially social movements theory, uh, uh, and so on. So uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome these two here today. Um, you can tweet about this event. The hashtag is uh, hashtag LSEPRA, P-I-E-R-R-E-T. Um, and so it simply remains, I think, for me to say, Perhaps I could just add one thing. If you want to join the, there's a research network called Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. And this seminar series is one of the key things it does. It also sends out fortnightly a digest to all its members 
which give you everything you need to know about protests, from publications to events to commentaries to uh, 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 job offers to funding opportunities to actual you know, important news about protests in the region. And, and so if you want to sign up to this uh, research network, it now has more than 100 mem academic and, and postgraduate and, and other student members on four continents. If you send me an email, I'll, I'll send you an invitation. And we also, um, you'll get, and it, it'll help you get the podcast for these events. And this research network also puts out um, seminar series papers, and we're hoping to publish Thomas Pire's uh, paper in that series. Anyway, there's also a website, so you can check it out online. So um, I'm going to hand over to uh, Dr. Pire for the next 20 minutes, but let's uh, welcome him in the traditional way. <clears throat> thank you very much, John. Thank you for your kind invitation. Uh, thank you, Jerome, for accepting to discuss this paper, and many thanks to you for attending my talk. So the, the research question of this paper is to uh, is how can we explain the variations in the success of Syrian insurgent groups? Uh, and more specifically, how can we make sense of the superior performance of Islamist factions compared to non-Islamist ones over the last six years? Uh, before I continue, I'd like to define two terms I've just used. Uh, when I speak of Syrian insurgent groups, I specifically refer to uh, insurgent units or factions. I mean a group with a single chain of command, because if you look at the, the insurgent landscape in Syria, you also have a number of coalitions, which are usually called front, uh, where you know, different groups might you know, pool some uh, resources together, uh, coordinate somewhat, but they would keep their uh, 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 command structure uh, their own, you know, separate command structure. I'm, I will only discuss and compare uh, different insurgent factions. Second, I've used the term success. What do I mean here? Uh, success uh, in this paper is primarily measured in terms of territorial reach and long-term cohesion. Uh, territorial reach, by that I mean that if you, if you look at the, the hundreds of uh, Syrian rebel factions, we realize that most of them are local, they operate locally. Uh, some of them operate at a, a province-wide level, but it's really a, a handful that operate nationwide and that have a meaningful presence uh, in various parts of the country. And today, all of them are Islamist organizations, you know, the Islamic State, the former Nusra Front, known today as Hayat uh, Tahrir al-Sham, Commission for the Liberation of the Levant, Ahrar al-Sham, uh, the Army of Islam. You can add to that, of course, uh, the, the Kurdish PYD, YPG, which is a leftist organization. Um, but so it's really a very small number of uh, non-state military actors that operate nationwide in Syria. All, all of the others are local. Uh, I also mentioned long-term cohesion. Uh, why is that important? Because if you look at the, the past, you know, like the, the, first, the three first years of the conflict, you will see other factions that once uh, expanded and, oper and, and operated nationwide to the extent that they were uh, able to compete with Islamist factions. So, I mean, non-Islamist factions that grew uh, considerably 
uh, were once seen as credible competitors. Uh, in 2012, there was the, the, the Farouk battalions, which was very powerful. Uh, the 2013, the Fadr Rasul brigades. 2014, the Hazem movement. So all of these were once powerful uh, uh, groups, but which you know, suffered from a lack of cohesion and quite rapidly disintegrated as a result of military setbacks, so external factors, but also obviously from internal problems, and essentially a, a problem of cohesion among their, uh, among their leadership. Uh, so how can we make sense of these different trajectories? Um, in the paper, I review and I partly dismiss three widespread explanations for these variations, which are uh, ideology, popular support, and uh, material resources. So let's start with ideology. So here the idea is that uh, militant Islamists come up with a frame you know, uh, that, you know, an ideological frame that suits uh, the brutalization of the conflict, sectarian polarization, uh, the, the, the consequences of foreign intervention. Uh, this purportedly suitable frame, you know, uh, uh, sorry, allows them to generate appeal, to recruit new fighters, to co-opt other factions. Uh, ideology is also supposed to provide these groups with a greater determination and fighting spirit, which is most spectacularly illustrated by their use of suicide operations. Uh, now, all of this is important, but there are some problems with this explanation uh, uh, on the basis of ideology. And one of these problems is that if you look at the situation of the, the insurgent, the Syrian insurgency at large by 2013, you realize that there is a very deep and widespread uh, phenomenon of radicalization and Islamization really across the board. So you have many formerly non-Islamist factions which in the context of brutalization of the conflict and for, for, for several reasons embrace a radical Islamist ideology, yet uh, this n does not really have a, a, a dramatic impact on their organizational performance. Um, now, even if we admit, and we shouldn't, right, that there is an obvious relation between the fact that an insurgent group embraces a militant ideology and the fact that it performs well as an insurgent organization. Uh, let's just remember, if you think about leftist groups, I mean, the history of, for instance, Latin America is full of leftist groups that had, that had a, like a, a, a militant uh, ideology that seemed perfectly you know, suited for, for armed struggle, and yet they failed miserably. Uh, yet, if we accept this relationship, uh, that would not explain why in Syria, in Syria we also find uh, non-militant religious groups. By non-militant, I mean people who before 2011 uh, did not embrace a militant ideology. They were exclusively concerned with you know, teaching religion to people. They did not embrace the idea of armed struggle, unlike the jihadis. Uh, and yet some of them did remarkably well as insurgent organizations, I mean, when they turned into insurgent organizations after 2011. Uh, to take the example of the Army of Islam in Damascus, for instance. 
And a uh, uh, third and last problem with this idea of ideology is that if you look at suicide operations, uh, they're spectacular. They're, they're, they are definitely a, a, a significant tactical advantage for the organizations that resort to them. But you also find very sizable, very successful uh, Islamist factions that essentially do not use uh, suicide operations, like Ahrar al-Sham. Uh, so that's not really a, a, a crucial variable here. Now, popular support. Uh, if you look at you know, the, the media narrative, especially in 2012 and 2013, you have this widespread assumption that uh, uh, Islamist factions are uh, securing support because they provide effective governance. Uh, they provide public services. They provide some form of law and order in the context of anarchy. Uh, and that's why you know they're uh, they're expanding, they're attracting new people, and why that's why they're uh, they're successful. The problem here is that uh, you still have to explain why these groups are able to provide effective governance. So that's a dependent variable. It, it you know it does not explain anything in itself. Also, it's not at all obvious that radical Islamist factions have been overall more popular than others because. There are really pros and cons with uh, Islamist governance. It's effective, but it's also extremely invasive and repressive. And because of this, it has quite early on provoked popular backlash to the extent that, you know, whatever popular support Islamist factions uh, secured in the, the, the early years of the uprising, uh, they actually lost much of it after 2014, and we've seen many instances of popular protest against these uh, organizations. And yet, uh, these, this, I mean, I think we can speak of a growing unpopularity of these groups, but that, this, that didn't have any major impact on their performance as insurgent groups. They were basically untouched by this. So there's no relation between popular support and uh, effectiveness as, a, as an insurgent organization. Third, if you, the, the question of resource, I mean, it's a widespread assumption that Islamists did better in the Syrian insurgency because they were better funded. Uh, I would say that is essentially not the case. Uh, if we speak of foreign states, and especially Saudi Arabia, and of course the United States, they spent enormous resources, uh, by resources I mean cash and weapons, on non-Islamist factions like the Farouk Battalions, the Hafad al-Rasul Brigade, Hazm, precisely because they were trying to counterbalance Islamist factions. And despite these enormous resources, they, 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 they had very limited success. As I explained, these factions kind of you know, grew rapidly because they were over-resourced, but then they didn't really last and they collapsed. Uh, on the contrary, Islamist factions uh, have been able to survive uh, very severe losses of resources. For instance, you know, I, give the, I give the example of the Nusra Front and Ahrar al-Sham in 2014. Uh, that was really a very difficult year for them for two reasons. They were kicked out from eastern Syria by the Islamic State, and that's where these groups were operating oil wells from which they were deriving resources, so they lost them to the Islamic State. At the same time, the United States decided uh, uh, sanctions against uh, uh, private donors in the Gulf who were funding these groups. 
so there were very you know, serious financial consequences for them, but yet you see them you know, continue to thrive and to expand in subsequent months. Uh, the Islamic State, as well, uh, is, you know, uh, seems to be an organization that has predominantly relied on uh, locally generated funding uh, over the last years, even before uh, the Syrian war, and yet, as you know, it's the most uh, powerful uh, uh, insurgent faction in Syria. So that's why I felt the need to come up with uh, an alternative explanation, which I found in a book by Paul Staniland called uh, Networks of Rebellion, published in 2014. Staniland essentially starts by challenging the same explanations as those I've just uh, briefly uh, criticized now, uh, ideology, popular support, money. Uh, and, you know, what he's trying to explain is the difference in the, the, the success of different insurgent groups in South Asia, in Kashmir, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka. His explanation, which he calls social institutionalist, uh, consists in saying that the key to the success of insurgent organization uh, is the pre-war social networks upon which these organizations are built. And by social networks, he means two set of ties, uh, what he calls vertical ties, between that is, between insurgent leaders and local communities. Okay? It's the ties that provide groups with a popular base, which in turn provide them with a safe haven, fighters, material resources. And the other category of ties are horizontal ties, ties between insurgent leaders uh, of one same organization who operates in different localities. Whether these ties are strong, and you can have combinations, uh, lead to a typology of four categories of groups. So very rapidly, uh, uh, integrated groups are groups with strong vertical and horizontal ties. Paro parochial groups are groups with strong vertical ties, so they're deeply, so strongly socially embedded, but they have weak ties uh, between their leaders. Uh, so they're weakly centralized. Uh, vanguardist groups, sorry, vanguardist groups are the opposite. So you have a, a very cohesive leadership but weak ties to local communities, and fragmented groups have nothing. So they have a weak uh, 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 cohesion between the leaders and weak ties to uh, local communities. So they're basically useless. Uh, I can simplify the typology for the case of Syria because uh, I think in Syria you, you only have integrated and parochial organization. The reason is that vertical ties are strong across the board. Uh, all insurgent groups in Syria, whether small or big, have very strong ties to local communities. They're strongly, very deeply embedded in local communities. This is because of the nature and the history of the, the Syrian insurgency. It's a spontaneous mass popular mobilization and most rebel leaders emerge from insurgent communities through a bottom-up process. So you don't have these uh, uh, urban middle-class students who decide to go to the, the countryside and wage an insurgency by mobilizing the peasant, but they don't know how to speak to the peasant, so they fail. You, you don't have that in Syria. Um, well, jihadi groups, when they start, uh, I won't go into details, but they, they, during their very first months of existence, they start a bit like a vanguardist 
model. So you have these, you know, group of, of uh, uh, jihadi veterans who, you know, try to ride the wave of the, of the, the insurgency. Uh, but they don't stay vanguardists for long. They very easily reconnect with their communities uh, because their communities happen, happen to be at the forefront of the uprising. The reason here is that you have an overlap between the, the, the social milieu of the, 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 the veterans of the Iraqi jihad, so the, the young Syrians who went to fight in Iraq after 2003, and the communities that rose against the regime in 2011. As you know, it's, it's an uprising that is predominantly, not exclusively, a peripheral one. I mean, it's rural, suburban, uh, and it's from these regions that most uh, Iraq veterans uh, stem from. So, uh, the main variations are in terms of horizontal ties, and that's really what explains the variations in the success of insurgent groups. Uh, so you basically have groups with very strong horizontal ties between their leaders and others with very weak ones. Uh, and if you have strong horizontal ties, you have trust between the leaders. This allows for the circulation of sensitive information, of resources. It allows for the delegation of power. That means that you can institutionalize uh, your, uh, the structure of an insurgent group. If you don't have strong horizontal ties, you can't do any of this. And that's the recipe for the kind of disaster I've mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, as I've said, and as Staniland says, the, these uh, horizontal ties, they're very largely determined by the pre-war context. They depend on what kind of social networks people have been able to establish before the war. And unfortunately for Syrians in, in Syria under Assad, the possibi possibilities were extremely limited. Uh, social and political mobilization was you know, basically impossible. When it was possible at all, it was extremely local or very sporadic, very short-lived, or it was very elite, like you know, the Damascus Spring, it was a few dozen intellectuals. Uh, so overall, these mobilizations involved very few people. That means that most Syrians, and including most of the people who became insurgent leaders after 2011, were people whose available networks of trusted partners by 2011. By, by trusted partners, partners, sorry, I mean the people you trust enough to decide to uh, engage in insurgent warfare with them, which, as you know, need to explain, is a very risky business. Uh, sorry, so the available network of trusted partners was essentially limited to a fairly close environment, you know, kinship, village, neighborhood, your town. Uh, your region, if you're a merchant or you know, a businessman, it might be a bit uh, wider. Uh, but very few people had actually access to nationwide uh, networks of trusted people. With one major exception, which were uh, jihadi militants, for two reasons. Uh, either because they actually had a ready-made insurgent organization, Many of the people who went to Iraq in uh, 23 or after 23 uh, fought with the Islamic State in Iraq, which was still, you know, the ancestor of ISIS, the Islamic State, uh, which was still operating in Iraq. So the organization was there. They just had to adapt to a new context uh, and, you know, expand, uh, recruit new, new, new members there. So the organization was, was there. 
or for other jihadis who didn't have an organization by 2011, at least they had uh, strong nationwide horizontal networks they had forged through their common experience of militancy, mostly in Iraq, but for you know, older people in other places, uh, including for some of them in Syria in the late 1970s during the previous insurgency, and also crucially, uh, uh, horizontal networks that were uh, created in detention in uh, the, the prison of Sainaya, where Islamist detainees from all over Syria were concentrated, uh, spent several years together, and then developed you know, extensive nationwide networks, which were uh, exploited when these people were released by the regime in 2011. And, for instance, if you look at Ahrar al-Sham, which is one of the, the, the most sizable uh, insurgent groups in Syria today, you realize that basically all of their leaders, uh, at least most of them, were uh, uh, Sainaya inmates. Um, and I suppose I will have to finish very soon, John. Yeah, uh, too late. Yeah? Too late. Uh, but one remarkable consequence of this is that if you look at jihadi groups, and I think precisely because uh, they had these strong horizontal networks uh, that were there by 2011. Uh, they were able to establish common structures that were far more institutionalized than those you would find in other uh, insurgent groups. Uh, and typically what's uh, remarkable in these groups and, and perhaps more, more strikingly in Ahrar al-Sham is, is the, the fairly collegial nature of decision making. It's not just a one-man show. Uh, with a consultative council that plays a fairly prominent role, to the extent that uh, I would tend to think that Ahrar al-Sham is a sort of elective monarchy, uh, like you know, the Polish monarchy in the Middle Ages, where the king was elected by aristocrats which, which were, who were actually far more powerful than the king himself. And it's probably time to stop, isn't it? Um, Yes, that's perfect yeah. timing yeah. if you stop now. That's terrific. So thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. <clears throat> <clears throat> All right, so uh, Jerome Dravon, you now have ten minutes. I'll try to be quick as well so that we have more time later for the discussion. Um, so I really enjoyed your, your work on the Syrian conflict. It's related a lot to my work, so I thank you, John, for the opportunity to engage with, uh, with your paper. Um, First of all, I think the, the paper is important considering current arguments because we often hear that jihadi groups have been successful during the, the Syrian civil war because they've been supported by Gulf networks, they had funding and they had an ideology. So it's good to somehow engage with that and put, put the context back into, uh, into analysis for, um, for our current understanding of those, uh, those factions. Um, I will try to to engage with your argument, with my own thinking about, about similar issues that I've been exploring in, uh, in my work. So I will try to, uh, to, to relate your analysis to Stanley argument, see how it diverges somehow from what he says in his theoretical uh, framework, and how uh, white is actually congruent, the analysis. So my first point is that you should go a bit further into your characterization of pre-war networks. Because Taniland in his analysis actually differentiates between those networks that whose foundations could be politicized and turned against the states from other types of networks. And then he mentions the network that were actively preparing for conflict. So 
the first case is actually more important, uh, those networks whose foundations could be uh, politicized. Because when you mentioned those uh, networks that, that were successful, like uh, Ahle Sham, uh, Nusra, uh, Jaysh al-Islam, etc., it could be interesting to relate it to other networks that existed before 2011, but that did not achieve the same transformation. Uh, often when you hear quantitative analysis, they always say don't, uh, say, uh, don't select on the dependent variable. So in that case, you could see, especially based on your previous work, what types of other networks, whether politicized or not politicized, did, uh, did fail, uh, or just failed to transform into an uh, insurgent network. Is it because they didn't want it or because they had some shared characteristics? For example, uh, I met, what's his name, Ahmed al-Din uh, Rashid. He had, he had some polit uh, politicized network as well, but he never created his own group while he was politicized. And so it's quite, quite a contrast with Jaysh al-Islam, whose network was not politicized, but that then became an insurgent, uh, an insurgent group. So it's interesting that you don't just need to be politicized before. Some groups are more, more easily transformed into insurgents than others. Um, my second point is, that study then mentions that networks actively preparing for the use of violence usually actually fail to do so because they will be repressed before. And so in the Syrian case, it's, uh, it's not really the case in the sense that uh, Ahle Sham, for example, its, uh, its leaders were actually preparing for the conflict before, according to their own, uh, own admission. In the 2000s, they were already training their members for a future conflict. Uh, the same for Nusra that was active in, in Iraq and so on. And so in that case, it's actually quite interesting that because it contrasts and it contradicts somehow the point made by uh, Staniland. Then, I would personally engage more with the role played by, uh, by ideas. I agree it's not just about being an Islamist group or about having jihadi beliefs that explain why you would succeed or not, uh, why you would succeed or not. But I do think that ideas do, do have an impact in the sense, for example, when I interviewed people and asked them, why did you join that or that fa uh, faction? Often you hear two arguments. The first one is, I knew somebody from there, so it means that, that's about network. But often ideas do come in terms of credibility. They said, I joined this group because they were jihadi, so they were more organized, had more resources, they had a project, they are not like local thieves fighting for local interests. So in that sense, ideology can play a role, but I agree with you, it's not just about ideology, but it's ideology from this networking approach. So in that sense, idea go with the, with the network uh, framework that you've developed. Then my third point will be about uh, vertical ties. Um, you don't really develop the idea of vertical ties in your paper, but I do, I would personally, then I might be wrong, but I would differentiate possibly between Jaysh uh, al-Islam and Ahrar on the one hand, and Nusra and uh, Tanzima Daoula on the other hand. In the sense that, to me, it seems that Jaysh al-Islam and Ahrar were more, embed, uh, more vert vertically connected before the conflict with their communities. Because vertical ties in the in his framework is about like pre-conflict uh, ties. So in that sense, they were more embedded uh, locally. But Nusra and uh, Tanzima Daula, when you speak to people, it's more, they perceive them as more coming from, uh, from outside. So Tanzima Daula as being a group led by, uh, by Iraqis, even to this day, that then impose themselves locally through like alliances with families, clan, etc. They use local divisions to create ties, but later on, they were not pre-existing. For Nusra, some people say that they were using uh, Fatal uh, Islam uh, a network from uh, the 2000s, but that I don't really know for sure. So in that sense, it would be that Nusra, for example, was more vanguard and then became more integrated, as I think you mentioned in the presentation. So that does not negate your point, but it 
rather engages with uh, Staniland as saying that maybe vertical ties are not as important as horizontal ties, which is the main, uh, the main argument that you develop throughout uh, your paper. Then my fourth point, and nearly the last one, is about the characterization of weak versus strong ties. That's an issue that pervades uh, Staniland's research and many analyses in social network analysis in, uh, in general. How do you differentiate a strong from a weak ties? It's often, the definition, it's, it's not often um, well, uh, well defined. For my own research on, uh, on Ahrar, it seemed that all the leaders were not necessarily connected through strong ties with one another, but they had weak ties, rather. So some of them were part of the same village, but then they knew other people who were involved in, uh, in mobilization for Iraq, other people who were involved in, uh, in Chechnya, other people who were uh, participated in the war in Afghanistan, etc. And very quickly, through these weak ties, they managed to get, uh, to, to get together. So for me, the, the um, survival of Akhrar is not as much about ties, even though ties are important, as how they transform those ties into internal institutions, as creating that it is common Shura, as you explained, uh, very uh, very consensual. I think that was as important as the ties. So both of them are go together somehow. Then, um, so that means that what's important as well is how to uh, how those factions institutionalize, they create their own, uh, and do formalize themselves based on the pre-network uh, that existed before, uh, before the war. So um, I hope it was clear enough. I will send you a, a fully de full detailed uh, paper. And uh, so we'll give the floor to the attendees. So thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Dravon. That was uh, yeah, very useful. So you um, now have up to you know three to five minutes to respond mm -hmm. because there's some important points being made and then mm -hmm. we open it up to questions and discussion yes um, uh, well thank you very much Jerome that was uh, intense uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah don't select on the dependent variable uh, good advice um, uh, yeah, well, there, there, are, there are many reasons why, I mean, first, there weren't that many networks that were, you know, first of all, even if, if you look at, you know, religious networks, all of them, basically, they were very local in Syria before, before 2011, uh, with very few exceptions. I mean, the main exception being a female movement, so... Mm -hmm. I'm not, not, you know, the most appropriate one for, for a, an armed insurgency. Uh, but uh, so all of it was, was very local. Uh, so, sorry, what was your question exactly? Uh, on the no, no, <laughs> I, sorry, it's just like throwing uh, the idea mm -hmm. because I'm not sure whether there were like other networks that could not have mobilized the same way. Because there were yes. other types of opponents, including among uh, yeah. Islamists, but that did not uh, yeah. mobilize. But the man you mentioned, Imadin Rashid, I mean, he, he was not part of a movement or anything. He was... So yeah, there were people like him who were in touch with one another the way some people of mm -hmm. Akhar could be in touch with one another as well. But they didn't create their own network. So it's just in that sense, just to, to think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did many things in the, the early days of the, this particular man you mentioned, many things in the early days of the insurgency, but acted more like a broker mm. uh, between, you know, foreign funders and... Uh, uh, and local groups and so on. 
Uh, I think there was a second question which I in inadvertently deleted. Um, um, so I don't know, but... Uh, second question, I think, was... Um, uh, Staniland says that those prior to the conflict who had prepared for violence mm -hmm. were repressed. Oh, yeah. So they didn't pop up, whereas in your case, the people who had already been fighting did exist, hadn't been repressed, and did yeah. go on to play a role. I, was that the yeah, question? Yeah. So it's more noticing, uh, and that actually can be explained by what you say when you say that many of them were released before, like just mm -hmm. after the, the uprising. But that, that explains in terms of changing of different yeah. types of states' uh, answer to that. Yeah, I don't know, I mean, that's very interesting. But, but perhaps here you have also something that's peculiar to the Syrian context, where it's a kind of relative advantage. Yeah. But if, if in, in a somewhat more open political environment, they, they, I don't know, you would have other, you know, networks or movements that, that, that would be in a better position and that would be, you know, comparatively advantaged compared to the, with regard to the, the jihadis, but they were basically the only game in town. Mm -hmm. So even if they were badly repressed and, you know, by 2011, essentially all of them were in jail yeah. or out of Syria, but uh, they, they, they filled the void, so... I don't know, perhaps it's, it's the, 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 the context that explains this. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you say, you, you know, you interview these people, you ask why they joined, but the, the term you use is, well, I, 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 I went with the Islamists because they were more organized. So, yeah, organization is not really about... I, I mean, I think you could certainly find jihadi organization or jihadi groups that are, that are a complete mess. Mm. It probably exists. Uh, so I, I don't think... Yeah, but it's not the idea that they were more organized, but had a project as well. Yeah. Like, often it, it's mentioned that they knew what they were doing. While other cases, you often have, yeah, there are officers, but we don't really know what, what they want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Or others are just, like, thieves and trying to steal from us, etc. Especially mm -hmm. many of those affiliated to Jaish al Khawri, etc. But it's related to, uh, to the mm -hmm. organization, etc. Yeah, uh, but again, I, I think this is this is something that was heard very much in the first years of the conflict. But then, in a way, it was counterbalanced because there were there was also growing skepticism toward I think towards jihadi groups precisely because they knew so much what they, what they wanted to know that it it was you know obviously so contrary to what it, you know everything people had been you know rising against in, in 2011. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, then a false question differentiating. Uh, I mean, it's still unclear. But when you look at uh, the Nusra Front, I mean, of course, it's all. I mean, the, their origin is still very opa opaque. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, people don't even agree ab about about the actual, you know, hometown of. Abu Muhammad al Jolani, mm. you have at least two different versions. Uh, uh, but according to one of them, he, he was from or actually spent a great deal of time in Shuhail, in, in the, the province of Deir Ezzor. Yeah. Uh, so, which was one, one, one of you know, the early stronghold of the movements. So, you might say that he or his aides. Um, he had his, uh, his own relation. 
they, they, they just reconnected with their, you know, their 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 hometown and their and the communities they, they were they were coming from, uh, and you know, still the, the when the Islamic State in Iraq in late 20, in 2011 decided that they had to create a front organization in Syria, they mostly sent Syrians there. I mean, not exclusively Syrians, but they, 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 they didn't say, oh, we'll just send a bunch of Iraqis. And I think that there was this idea that I mean, you, you need Syrians because you need to, to, to be able to, that, that would be probably, it would be easier to, rec to, to connect with the, uh, yeah, local communities this way. Um, but I agree with you that later on you have this sort of colonial strategy of you know, co-opting co -opting tribal chieftains and playing them against each other. Um, but it's at a stage when the organization, anyway, is already quite powerful and, and well-established inside Syria. Um, and then weak and strong ties. I, I'm not. I mean, it's it's really a problem of definition, and I, I agree with you. I mean, the problem is with me, not not with you. Uh, but uh, even if you don't know someone very well, if 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 he's from your hometown and that you know that he fought in that he did jihad somewhere, is that really a weak tie? Even if he's not your best friend? That's what I'm wondering myself. I mean, that's why. But by, by by Syrian standards, I mean, you the the, the men already tick many boxes, mm. which make it make him look like someone you can trust yeah. uh, in a society that is basically governed by sus mutual suspicion because of the, the political system in which these people have been living for, for decades. So uh, Then I ideas can help in combination to the network because it's about, you know that somehow you can be connected to him through your village or school, etc. Plus he has done something that ideologically con is congruent with what yeah. you believe in. And if you know that the man has, you know, sacrificed years of his life, spent years in, in jail and he's been tortured, then... Yeah, that, no, definitely. He's, uh, I mean, that's a good CV for, 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 for if, you, if you have the same profile. Yeah, but in that sense, it's a bit slightly different from Staniland, for whom, finally, it's like uh, those uh, strong ties that, oh, yeah, it was like a political party and they were already like, connected to one another, etc. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, not as strong as the fact that they would have been part of the same organization, etc. So it yeah. means that it's... It relaxes somehow the the conditions of uh, mm -hmm. of Daniland in yeah. the in the application to the to yeah. The Again, I think there is a really a difference of context here. I mean, no one of the the case studies of Staniland are about you know states that are as authoritarian as mm. as, as as Syria. Yeah, because they had groups before and yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, all of them. I mean, in all cases, you had actual political organizations before, so people didn't have to look mm. elsewhere, probably, uh, for, for, for partners. It makes the paper even more interesting, because it tried to, like, okay, that's not really a treaty. Mm.